Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. And joining me today is a really incredible guest with a very, very interesting background and resume. Joining me today is Mr. Isaac Litsky. Now, Inc. Magazine reported that Isaac Litsky may possess the most eclectic resume in business. And to, to be honest, I would actually agree with them. Um, and you're about to find out why. So over the years, uh, he has been a child television star. So he played the uh, he played the role of Weasel uh, on NBC's Saved by the Bell, the new class, which um, I didn't watch. I watched the original one when I was younger. I think my sister like loved that show. Uh, and he was a Supreme Court clerk for Justices uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Gingrich, which is incredible. Uh, and the co-founder of an internet startup, uh, along with a myriad of other things. He's, he's done a TED Talk. Um, he's done some incredible things. But just to give you a context, uh, to, to give you a little bit more insight into him, he graduated from Harvard at the age of 19. 19, he graduated from Harvard with an honors degree in mathematics and computer science. Uh, he then founded X Plus One uh, with uh, Media Maths, Joe Zawadzki. Uh, hopefully I'm saying that right. Um, and that was later acquired uh, years later for for over $230 million, which is which is incredible. Um, but he's he's fascinated with a whole bunch of, of different pieces. He graduated uh, magna cum laude in 2004 as the editor of the Harvard Law Review uh, and the only student named a fellow of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. So he's done some absolutely, absolutely incredible things. One of the one of the big things that is a uh, you know a very interesting piece about this is that during his early life, so he was actually a child actor in his teenage years, um, but in his teenage years he was diagnosed with a rare, very rare disease that um, actually caused him to go blind, and so he was able to get his degree while he still had his sight, um, but by the time he was in his mid twenties, he basically had lost his sight entirely, and so done a lot of things. He he did a, a a really, a really incredible TED talk, and uh, which there's a link in the show notes that you can check out. Um, and one of the one of the really cool things is he wrote a book called Eyes Wide Open, and it's very interesting because really what this whole episode is all about is our perceptions of the world, and we sort of Isaac and I sort of take a, a philosophical look at how we perceive reality, not just from our senses and our perceptions. But from everything else, from how sheer, uh, how fear shapes our per, per, uh, perception, how different components of our life and our brain and um, just our, our emotional body actually shape the way that we view the world, how assumptions play into that, uh, in, into that and, and how we can start to reform, reshape and empower ourselves to have a much stronger outlook on the world, how we can move through fear and integrate it, how we can uh, leverage acceptance, how we can start to remeasure our own version of success. 
and uh, he shares some personal stories. He, you know, shares some some personal adages. But we also just have a little bit of a conversation around. Here's how you implement some of these things. You know, here's how you shift some of your mindset and have a different view on the world when you know your mind starts to um, starts to fixate on certain things and takes you down a very negative spiral. And one of the things that he shares is his journey in going blind. Obviously, he had all of these assumptions. He had all these judgments. He had all these fears. And he kind of said, you know, I, I felt like my life was over in, in some way, shape or form because I wasn't, I didn't know it was on the other side. And I felt like I was losing one of the most important parts of me. And so he's got a very incredible story. And there's some really, really great nuggets of wisdom in here. Um, so make sure you grab a pen and paper. Uh, for the guys that are listening to the show, uh, don't forget to head on over to the Man Talks community on Facebook. Uh, and join up the conversation there. We've got some amazing men from around the world and really, really solid conversations. Um, we're going to have some men's weekends that are launching soon. So keep your eyes and ears out for that. Uh, I'm going to be running some men's weekends on the West Coast and on the East Coast. And I would love for you guys to join me. Um, we are going to rent out an incredible cabin and uh, and, and basically bring guys in to, to do some really great work around finding your purpose uh, improving your relationships and having a healthier, stronger body, mindset, soul, you name it. Um, so so keep, keep an eye out for that. And last but not least, definitely check out the Alliance. We've got an incredible group of men online that have weekly calls. So I will leave that there with you. And, uh, and without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Isaac Lidsky. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for this conversation, my friend. I I watched your TED talk. I did some background research on you, and and uh, I think one of the things that that I loved was it says you have a very eclectic resume, and <laughs> I I agree with that. I was like, the more I learned, the more I learned about you. You know, I think the more I felt aligned with you, just in the sense that you you seem to be a bit of a Renaissance man, which I really appreciate in in the modern day times. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I've been I've been blessed to have a lot of different uh, chapters, I guess, to my story, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, before we before we dive too deep into the conversation, I have to ask you the question because the listeners love this one, which is: tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Sure. Well, you know, there's, there's of course the classic uh, boy meets girl story of, of how Dorothy and I met, and that that largely defines my life today. And uh, we 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 have four children, and so I could tell you some of those stories, but. So, so a lot come to mind. I guess for, for our purposes, uh, you know, a, a story that has largely defined the way that I look at the world today is, is, is sort of the story of, of me losing my sight. So I was diagnosed with a blinding disease when I was 13 years old uh, in advance of really any symptoms and sort of told that I would uh, sort of progressively lose my sight and go blind. Uh, and that ultimately did sort of come to pass slowly over about a dozen years uh, from age 13 to 25. Uh, you know, I, 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 I lost my sight and, um, uh, you know, today I'm, I'm blind. Yeah, I mean that must have just been like a very transform transformational and transformative experience. I mean, it can't it can't not change uh, you or or us in in some way, shape, or form. And uh, you know, it sounds like you've learned quite a bit from that. It sounds like that that transition in your life, that period of, of your life, shifted quite a bit in terms of how you you know how you perceive things, how you how you um, analyze things, and and I really like you know I really like some of your perspective. On, on some of these components. And, and bef but before we dive into that, one of the things that was really interesting to me was, you know, your your background, right? Having been an actor and having then uh, gone to to Harvard 
and done done mathematics, which was like really really incredible. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing. What was it like to sort of be in the uh, in the creative fields? In you know, as an actor, as a young you know, as a young man, what what was that experience like? Sure. So yeah, I, I grew up the youngest of four kids and the only boy. To uh, and my parents are both. Uh, Cuban Jewish immigrants, they call us Jubans. So both, both of my parents hail from Jewish families that wound up escaping religious persecution. They wound up in, in, in Cuba. And that's where both of my parents were born and raised. And then they, they moved to Miami. And uh, you know, years later, I, I came around <laughs> um, as, as, as the only boy and the youngest of four. And so I, I really grew up king of my house. Uh, it was awesome. I like to joke that I was raised by a pack of women, which is kind of true. Um, and they spoiled me rotten. And, and, and I was, uh, you know, just as I was born into this sort of wonderful, you know, uh, familial structure, I was also born into acting. Uh, my older sisters had done it a bit as a hobby when they were kids sort of here and there. And by the time I was born, my mom was a pro in the business, knew all the agents and managers. And so, uh, you know, I did a diaper commercial when I was six months old and, uh, you know, it was all downhill from there. I just, I, you know, to me, it was, I didn't know any other life. It was just normal. You know, just like I went to school, I would also go to auditions and some days film commercials. And frankly, a lot of days go to work with my dad instead of going to school. And so mm. um, that was how I grew up. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Nice. Nice, man. I like that. I like that you say you did a diaper commercial and then it was downhill. <laughs> it was like diaper, well, diaper commercial was the highlight. Yeah, I peaked early. Very <laughs> nice. Okay. So what, what caused you to, uh, tell me a little bit about your academic career. Cause that, were you, were you homeschooled? Were you, um, would you, did you, were you able to actually go to school while being an actor at the same time? Yeah. So I, uh, in, in my case that worked out, I, I always had a, you know, a homeschool that I, that I was, you know, you know, in theory going to when I wasn't <clears throat> working, um, or traveling and, and, and yeah, with, with, uh, the aid of, you know, committed parents and committed teachers, uh, I was able to to stay up with my schooling and, and, and excel in school, even as I had this, uh, you know, enriching sort of career on the side. You know, meanwhile, all this uh, acting uh, craziness sort of culminated in me landing the role of uh, Barton Weasel Weisel on a sitcom called Saved by the Bell, the new class, uh, at which point, um, uh, you know, my mom and I moved from, from my hometown of Miami out to L.A. And it was sort of my first taste of a bright light, big screen and kind of, you know, my, my first taste of whether, uh, whether this would be something that I wanted, you know, as a, as a future for myself, as a career for myself. Uh, it was also right around that time that I was diagnosed with my blinding disease. So it was, it was an interesting time in my life. Yeah. What, what was that like as a teenager, just going through that experience of, of, you know, starting to have some of this, uh, you know, success within, within acting and, you know, kind of moving around like that. And then also having this, you know, this, this diagnosis, how, how did you manage that? You know, we're always, uh, you know, looking through the uh, sort of filter of hindsight. Um, and you know, the way I look at things, you know, now sort of a couple things were going on around that time. One as fun and exciting and, and, and wonderful and remarkable as sort of the entertainment business can be. It's also, uh, unusual and, and, and not without its sort of, uh, <laughs> drawbacks and complexities and, and, and upon sort of, uh, making it out there to LA to do this sitcom, I very, you know, quickly realized that there was a lot more to this that I didn't necessarily love for myself or, or didn't necessarily think made a, made a tremendous amount of self, uh, made a tremendous, tremendous amount of sense uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of my future. Uh, and then meanwhile, you know, at first when I was diagnosed sort of before the symptoms sort of began to set in in my sort of more mid to late teens, 
So around the time I was doing the sitcom, you know, at the time it felt like I was in a tremendous hurry. I felt just a profound urgency because I was living under this sort of awful lie, this, this fiction of my fear that as my sight sort of passed or, you know, faded away. And as I kind of, you know, crossed some threshold into, into the life of blindness, you know, that, that would be the end for me of, of achievement and, and success and joy and love and companionship. And all, I had these, all these awful ideas in my head. And so the, the, the feeling was the very palpable feeling was that I needed to uh, get as much done as quickly as I could with, you know, with as much sight as I still had left. So that coupled with a, a real dissatisfaction with, with sort of the industry or the acting as a sort of long-term career for me and kind of frankly being a little bit bored intellectually, I, I wound up heading off to college uh, a bit young. I, I, I uh, started college a couple of weeks after I turned 16 and then I graduated when I was 19. And, um, you know, again, it was really, I was just, it was, I was in a sprint. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to sort of race out as far ahead of, of blindness as I could at the time. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, it almost sounds like it lit a bit of a fire underneath you to, you know, to, to get some of these components done that you, that you wanted to get done. So did you, did you feel like with this, I mean, did, were you given a certain time frame in which they, you know, the doctor sort of said, Hey, uh, you know, you have this long until your site's going to leave you completely. I was not, I was told there's no treatments. There's no cures. We really don't know much about the disease. Uh, in an ideal world, you know, you, you won't really have any issues until your thirties or forties or fifties, God willing. But we, we, we really can't tell you much more than that. That was the state of the art at the time, at least I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's a vastly better picture, uh, in the sort of field of diagnosis today. So, you know, initially, you know, in the, in, in the first few years post diagnosis, it really was more of a mind game than anything else and kind of a bit of denial and a bit of just sort of trying to process this thing in the abstract. For whatever reason, the 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 the, the disease mechanism progressed relatively rapidly in, in in my eyes, and so you know by the time I was in my mid twenties, I was you know essentially completely blind uh, as I am today, um, and so <laughs> you know it, it, I often tell people that the that the experience going blind is about a hundred times was for me at least about a hundred times more uh, difficult or challenging than than the experience of of, of simply being blind. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it's because of all those sort of constant uh, mind games of how much worse is it going to get and how quickly and, you know, I can handle today, but tomorrow I'm worried about it. And, and so, uh, so it was uh, at first, as I describe, a really painful and challenging experience and something that I thought sort of spelled uh, sort of the end of my, of my life as I knew it. In an incredible way, though, really the experience of losing sight, you know, itself uh, really gave me a profound new perspective on life. It gave me sort of profound insights that have proved to be sort of among the best things that have ever happened to me in my life. Mm. So it's a, it's a complicated story. It's not a simple story, but, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, I was able to, like I said, uh, you know, I, I lost, you know, I lost my sight, but I gained this vision, man, I wouldn't trade it for anything, uh, right now. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And that, you know, I, it's, it sounds like you've really not only had that shape you, but you've sort of shaped your perspective of it, which is incredible. Um, before we dig straight into that, I'm curious about, you know, you said that you went to uh, university or college. Um, I'm Canadian, so we always call it university, um, you know, but you, you went to Harvard at a very young age. Why did you pursue mathematics? Of all the things that you could have done, knowing what you knew at that time, why did you pursue mathematics? 
So I had always loved math and I actually, I did a math and computer science major. And to me, math is just this immensely beautiful and powerful way of thinking conceptually of solving problems of relating experience to uh, some objective framework. Computer science is largely the same. I later went on to law school. I, I, I law, had long wanted to go to study law. In my mind, that's really similarly another kind of mode of thought, another tool bag. So I, I've long been drawn to, you know, the, the just the, sort of the immense uh, power and flexibility of the human mind and the way we can, you know, we can uh, develop different modes of thinking and different modes of problem solving uh, for ourselves. So that's that's the consistent theme, if there is one. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say it's interesting because as you were describing what drew you to mathematics, I was like, oh, that that actually makes a lot of sense now. Kind of looking looking at your story. So so let's let's kind of shift because you touched on some interesting parts, you know, just throughout your journey. And one of the biggest pieces that stands out for me that you know I feel just like I I probably could learn personally from you in this space is is how we create our own realities and and our and how we create our our perceptions of things and how those can easily be distorted in in many many ways and so i'm curious based off of your experience how uh, how do you believe that we create our realities and and our perceptions and then and then we'll get into after how we can you know how we distort those <laughs> sure sure so you know it, it look far smarter uh people than me and and you know True philosophers and scholars and scientists have, you know, have opined on this, but you know, I, in my experience, I've lived it, and 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 sort of my experience, losing my sight. We have this 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 perception, this feeling that what we're interacting with out there, you know, is just that is that is it something that is out there that is uh, real, that is objective, that is sort of universal, that is truth. And when you when you really think about it, when you really sort of peel back, uh, you know, the layers of the onion, so to speak. That's true of very, very, very little. Now, I, I you know, I, I do get the occasional email like, "Oh, if you know, if you create your own reality, why can't you fly, or why aren't you blind?" No, I, I, I do believe we are still governed by you know laws of physics and the, the sort of the, the the rules of the universe and those kinds of things. But sort of beyond that, what what we make of the stimulus that we get um, uh, from you know from our senses, and uh, um, which, by the way, is in and of itself a very narrow range of information, right? The, the, uh, let's take the eyes, for example, one, you know, one I'm pretty, pretty fired up about. Like, so you have this thing in the back of your eye called a retina, which responds to electromagnetic radiation that falls within a certain wavelength. We call that sort of a range, the visible spectrum, us humans. It's, pretty, uh, it's a pretty bold claim for us to just sort of define the visible spectrum with reference to you know, that, uh, that, that narrow band of electromagnetic radiation, radiation that happens to tickle uh, our photoreceptor cells. Turns out, in terms of the, the, the full range of electromagnetic radiation, our eyes respond to one ten trillionth, one ten trillionth of what's out there. So, I mean, to, to say that the instrument with which we see the eyeball, which with, with which we collect data, you know, gets one ten trillionth of the information out there uh, and yet to walk around believing that you have some idea of what the world quote unquote looks like the concept is preposterous we create in our minds a reality that is the amalgam of our perceptions in the moment and it's the amalgam of our experiences of everything uh you know we've experienced up to this moment it's the summation of our relationships uh our memories our experience our pain our joy and and all of those things are are just as much just as much play a part in, in what we experience as quote unquote reality, uh, as, as stimulus from the outside world. Yeah. Once, once you really, once you see that, once you really believe that, um, 
you know, you, you, you can recognize that like literally in every moment we get to choose who we want to be and how it is that we want to live our lives. And then that is just in, it's just an awesome power. Um, it's our ultimate power. And, uh, I firmly believe it's why we're here. And so I, I try to do so with awareness and purpose. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, I think what you're, you know, what you're referring to really is a reminder for people to, to help, help remind everybody that, that on some level, we only perceive, we only really see a fraction of the truth of what's actually there, you know, whether it's in a conversation with, with our spouse or a coworker or, you know, just an interaction with a, with a barista at a coffee shop, you know, we're only seeing a sliver, we're only perceiving a sliver of, of what's actually happening, Absolutely. you know, and, and oftentimes we these broken little microscopic shards and we think we have like a window on the wall. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, and then we sort of base fundamental truths and, and reactions, you know, based on that, on that sliver. So let's, and then we cannot comprehend that someone could think. Otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot, a lot. It's, it's so, it's so very true. So, so let, let's talk a little bit about distortions. Cause I think, you know, what we're really talking about is, is on one hand, there are ways in which that we perceive the world. And I think that what, you know, you just breaking down how we see things with, with our eyes is so applicable for how we can see things emotionally as well and how we can see things in terms of context. So no what doubt. are some of the pieces that distort our perspective of, of reality? Well, you know, I, so I talk a lot in my book about fear. I think fear is a very big one. I think it's a really sort of pernicious force in our lives. I, you know, evolutionarily, sort of biologically, there's a bit, serves a great function and it's something we need, but, but in our more enlightened selves, it, 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 it's a really pernicious force. So I talk a lot about fear, you know, ideas of, uh, of, of self-acceptance of self-love. Uh, the, I mean, we, we have an ability, we, you know, uh, us humans, we, we, you know, uh, uh, despite, uh, our immense capacity for, for gratitude, for joy, for love, you know, we can walk around and tell ourselves just awful things. We tell ourselves these stories about, we're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not this enough. We're to this. We're not enough of the other thing. I mean, and we, you know, we believe the stories we tell ourselves. And so, uh, you know, ideas of acceptance and surrender and sort of self-limiting assumptions we make, that's, an, that's another area in which I think we don't realize our own hand in, in shaping our realities. Um, I think the way that we tend to misperceive the force of uh, luck in our lives uh, can, can get us into trouble. We ha- I think we tend to have a overly simplistic uh, uh, and not not terribly productive view of of of, of luck, um, and sort of an on and on and on. So you know, to me, uh, I, I try to think about this this idea of mastering your reality, and you know, sort of thematically in different contexts, even in different spheres, whether you look at politics or business, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm endlessly fascinated about all of it. But I, what I what I will really just sort of commend to to to, to you and to your to your listeners, what I'll urge everyone is, the, I mean, the fundamental point is is blessedly simple. Um, I mean, the fundamental point is, uh, you know, again, the, the accountability, the responsibility begins and ends with, with you to make the life for yourself that you want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. One of the, I mean, you touched on a few really important pieces that I think we can probably dig into, but wh- one of them being, you know, the concept of, of fear, which is a really huge component in terms of distorting our reality. And it, and it seems like, you know, in, in our, culture and our society, fear is leveraged, fear is used in, in ways to sort of manipulate and scare people. Fear is, you know, also a very intrinsic 
part of our own internal stories, you know, our, our own internal narratives of how we speak to ourselves. So can you give a little bit of, of context? Because I'm sure that, you know, I've always found that personal experiences are, are really powerful. And I can imagine that having gone through something like this, there must have been a ton of fear on, on your part, like, you know, going through losing, losing your sight, especially at a young age like that. How did you start to face and, and manage or at least deal with the fear that was coming up in, in those, uh, in those situations? And how did you actually like start to move through that? So, you know, you know, in, in truly remarkable ways, you know, as I, as I was saying earlier, sort of the disease itself was kind of part of the, part of the cure. And, and, and what I mean by that is, as I was experiencing sort of more and more viscerally these these sort of fears as my sight was beginning to ter- de- deteriorate, with with the very deterioration of that sight, uh, sort of the, uh, the, the 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 sort of the curtain was being pulled back, and I was kind of able to to sort of see the wizard kind of behind the curtains, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so put another way, as my sight deteriorated, uh, and I was able to literally sort of see for myself how this magical illusion. Right, this experience of sight—it's amazing, right? It's so believable, it's so real. Um, but I was able to experience for myself, uh, like literally, see how it, how it's just that—it's this masterful illusion that is built up of just far more than data from the eyes. Data from the eyes is about ten percent of the story, uh, and ninety percent of it is other stuff. And it turns out that when you start degrading uh, the data that gets back to the brain from the eyeballs, and the brain is still trying to do its best to keep, uh, you know, keep keep the show going. Man, you get some really weird effects, and 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 when you start to to see it and pick them apart, you can actually kind of uh, start to understand what's going on, if that makes any sense. Um, and so, even as I was sort of seeing more and more and more that sight is this subjective, you know, self creation, I was also feeling more and more intensely this narrative of my fears about how my life was going to be so uh, awful and empty and limited. And I mean, these were just things I told myself. Um, it, it literally lies born in my fear. We, we can talk for a second why why fear does such a good job uh, coming up with such convincing yeah. lies. Um, but there, there was an aha moment for me. When, I'm sorry if I'm rambling on, but when, you know, when I did when I did finally through the love of my now wife and, and, and her family and, and others, I, I wound up going to see an occupational therapist to start talking about some of the practical solutions that that you know that we should start looking at. It, you know, in this whole you know business of me progressively losing my sight. And I was so wrapped up in these sort of endless, unproductive fears about doom and gloom and future foreboding and this boogeyman, this boogeyman of blindness that like, I, I, I literally walked into that office thinking that like, that's what we were going to talk about, right? This awful blindness narrative. And, uh, this, this expert just, you know, she wanted to jump right into very practical things. Uh, do you use a cane yet? Have you been trained to use a cane? No, I thought it was way too early to use a cane. I don't know. I don't know who told me that. I had just told myself. Well, she says there's all sorts of ways a cane can benefit you. Know, she starts training, uh, training. She starts teaching me about uh, software I can use to interact with my computer using my ears instead of my eyes. You know, techniques. And you know, it really just hit me like, wow, like just just like we take for granted that uh, the world is as we see it with sight. Uh, in, in, in very much the same way, uh, my brain has, uh, you know, convinced me that all these awful sort of machinations of my fear are reality. And I am just as much in control of all that as I am, you know, it appears of this sort of experience of sight. And gee, I wonder what else 
what else I'm in control of here? And, you know, that led to a lot of introspection. And, and as I was kind of rebuilding my understanding of who I am and who I want to be, and, and as I, you know, and, and accommodating my blindness in, in, in that story, uh, I was able to uh, really think a lot about the full extent of this, uh, what I call my sort of eyes wide open vision on, uh, on, on how we, you know, on how we shape the lives we live. And that, and that, like I said, has just been an immense source of, uh, a fulfillment and joy and reward and success in my life. And so it's, it's something that is a pleasure to share. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think, I mean, it's so interesting, right? Some of the pieces that you're, you're talking about, it's almost, it's almost as though losing your sight in some way made the, you know, made the sort of perceptions of the internal dialogue, the internal narrative, the inner critic, the fears, all of those things sort of become much more pronounced in a way. And it's interesting because I've, you know, having like done a lot of work with men and couples and, and whatnot and, and, you know, doing that, doing that type of work with people for a very long time, it's almost like our senses can they can distort in a way our internal narratives and and they can sort of block us. They can be the thing that blocks us from being able to understand our internal narratives and dialogues. And I know, I know in the book, you talk a little bit about the, the inner critic and um, I'm just curious how your relationship to the inner critic has evolved over time and, and how you have started to address that. Cause I think so many people really struggle with this unknown battle, right? Like this, this battle that no one really sees going on behind the scenes of, you know, maybe they feel like they're overweight. Maybe they feel like they're not in the job that they want or don't make enough money or aren't good enough in their relationship. And, and most people never see that inner critic sort of at work inside of our psyches, tearing us down or tearing us apart. And, and I'm curious what your journey is with your inner critic and how that sort of evolved. Well, you know, he, he's still there. I, I you know, uh, I haven't figured out a way to get him to go away forever. Uh, <laughs> I mean, for me, the exercises in keeping him as quiet as possible, uh, and really, um, let me take a step back before you, even, before you even get to that. I mean, I, I, I think really a lot of the work is in just sort of keeping clear who's who in, in your head up in there, right? Who, who's representing all these different voices, right? In other I guess you could call it introspection. I, I worry that introspection in a lot of ways is, is a dying art. You know, you mentioned how we're, we're, we can be distracted by uh, our senses, certainly sight, you know, is a, is a computation, uh, computational hall, right? It takes a lot of our computational power or whatever. Uh, we certainly are living in very distracting times generally. And so, you know, for all these reasons, you know, I, I, fear, I, I fear we're not doing as great a job as we should maybe with introspection. But I think that's ultimately what it's all about, right? I mean, it, it begins with a zealous commitment merely to be aware of all of the things that you are telling yourself uh, and a commitment to upon hearing those things uh, upon really hearing those things, question them. So you tell yourself, oh, I'm, you know, there's, there's no way I'm going to go ask for a raise to my boss because well, why, why not? Well, the boss would, you know, that guy's a dirk or this. Okay. So what, what does that have to do with you? What is within your control? What is what is right? What expresses who you want to be? Uh, what's consistent with your values? Right. Uh, that's that's where, uh, frankly, I think we, we need to do a lot more work. It, it, it never ceases to amaze me uh, how easy it can be uh, in this world that we live in to avoid what seems to me to be just the most basic, obvious, fundamental questions. Uh, how do we want to spend our time? What is important to us? 
What are the lessons we want to leave to our children? Uh, what does our marriage mean to us? What does a partnership mean? It's just so easy to be distracted by uh, all the quote unquote important things uh, and live your life without without much conscious thought about those things. And what a shame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, I feel I feel like our, you know, our cultures are more and more just becoming inundated with distractions to pull people away from really asking some of those, you know, some of those prominent questions and and being able to carve out the time to be able to answer them. You know, more and more people are saying the data show that we are literally at an alarming rate reducing our capacity to like to think critically yeah i mean you know uh, there was a study in the harvard business review that showed for example that while while we're consuming five times more information than we did uh, and i think it was 1984 85 was a reference year i think we consume something like 174 newspapers worth of quote-unquote information every day right damn five times we used to but we don't learn anymore yeah, that's not great at all. I mean, information is not what what we should prize, right? Uh, knowledge and wisdom is what we should prize. Yeah, and we, I mean, I think we have a we have a certain degree of retention of information, right? Just like you were talking about with 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 sight, and just like you know, you could use any of the senses. There, there's a certain amount of data and information that our brain can possibly handle and process all at once. And and not only that, but but retain and and so we're sort of inundating ourselves with an overload of information. Do you feel like that that overload plays in with with heightening fears? Like how how does that actually play in with the inner critic and some of the components that we're talking about? There's no there's no question. Polarization, extremism, us versus them. Uh, these things are intellectual shams, right? They're 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 conceptual laziness. They're they're, they're shortcuts that don't bear scrutiny. Life is nuanced, right? It, everything happens in, in, in the middle. The point is to have this, to be able to have the conversation about disagreeing on, on policy, right? The point is not to be uh, at war and hate each other. And I, I think in very pernicious ways, uh, you know, social media plays a role, our politics plays a role, sort of all, all of the above. But I, I do, uh, and I, you know, I hope I'm wrong on this, but I, I am uh, at a point where, not, where I feel uh, you know, grave concerns for you know, for where, where we're headed and, 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 and what we're doing about it, uh, more importantly. Uh, and that, you know, that's not to, not to even begin to mention things like, um, the, you know, the state of our climate and, uh, the, you know, increasingly perilous risks to the uh, very survival of our species seems like something we might want to pay more attention to as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you feel, do you feel like some of the external, some of the external challenges that we face are a result of just our internal psyche and the constructs that, that, you know, sort of universally or as a collective, we've sort of agreed upon. Because one of the things that that I see sort of happening continually over and over again is that a lot of the external structures, a lot of the external power struggles that we see in our society are almost representations of the internal shadow parts of ourselves that that most people don't want to deal with. Most people are unconscious to um, or or they don't want to they don't really want to um, ask questions about or dissect or think critically about and and they sort of get swept by the wayside and and you know we have a, a the, the culture of distraction and coping mechanisms so that people don't have to actually deal with those internal questions so have you have you observed this? Is that does that land for you? No, it most certainly does. I mean, for me, it's just. Uh, Life is hard. I mean, the, the, these issues that we, we deal with, 
just even with, within our own minds and hearts, let alone our own families and communities, let, you know, let alone our country and our world. I mean, the, the, you know, it's complicated. It's hard. It's messy. It takes effort. It takes uh, thought. It takes commitment. It takes nuance. I just, it, it, it seems to me the extent to which we uh, find it okay to be sort of increasingly lazy uh, intellectually and to just say, okay, it's, whatever is going to sort of kind of come up on this screen or in this filter bubble or in this sort of news group that I like, uh, that's, that's good enough for me. Um, and this, you know, this headline, for example, seems interestingly interesting enough for me to share it with my thousand friends, but not quite interesting enough for me to actually read it. You know, things like that, uh, you know, I think we, we've driven thought and deliberation and you know, quiet sort of out of, out of our, conversations out of our lives um and and we need those things yeah yeah i mean it, it seems like it's a, an unpopular thing you know to do but the but the thing that so many people are are craving yeah i mean it's also interesting how a lot of our a lot of our technology is structured in such a way to sort of put us in a in a in a bubble you know i was uh speaking with a, a gentleman the other day and we were talking about uh, he he asked me if I remembered. It was like December seventh, two thousand and six, or something like that. He asked me like a very specific day, and I said, "No, no, of course not. Like, I, of course I don't remember what was happening on that day." And he said, "Well, that's the day that Google announced personalized news, where you could you could choose personalized news, and it would basically, you know, then then it would sort of target." exactly what you wanted and would pick it would pick for you so all of the news all the news that you wanted to see and read and that you were interested in based on your political sure. views or values or whatever and he said that that sort of fundamentally started to create this chasm between between people and i mean it's just interesting right because it's it's almost like a separation of our of our internal identities a separation of our internal structures and players and so i you know i really appreciate the fact that you're saying get to know this inner critic right get to know this this part of you your, your point's phenomenal and right? i mean like it turns out the more you can polarize people and put them in very uh extreme boxes and, and we give them labels and categories. The more you can do all that, it's, it becomes a lot easier to advertise to them. Yeah. To market to them. Yes. And so we are, uh, uh, insatiable consumers of media that is designed to make us as, uh, effective as possible as targets of advertising. And that's okay. I'm not saying anyone's evil in all this, but like th those are the incentives. Like that, that is what has given rise to this world. And it is now uh, incumbent upon all of us to look at it and say, are we okay with what has resulted? Is this a net good for us? Mm. Uh, is this working for us? And I think, uh, you know, frankly, I, I am increasingly frustrated uh, with the drip, drip, drip of news that comes out about uh, these companies like uh, Facebook, Google, uh, even now Twitter. Uh, uh, in the latest report that came out in the post this weekend, I I'm tired of these companies thinking that their profit motives give them reason to play around in the, the structure of our democracy. Uh, I I'm not okay with that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because at, at some point, <clears throat> at some point we can clearly see how the structures are, are operating. But the, I think that the, the challenge is, is that the more, the more as a collective that we've agreed upon something, the harder it is as a collective for people to do something about it. And that that's exactly right. Yeah. It's the, it's the proverbial network effect. Right. Right.
Yeah. I mean, so, so, I mean, that, this kind of plays into, you know, one of the other things that you talk a lot about, which is, um, w- you know, which is in, in your book, sort of the, the idea of assumptions and that, that we can make assumptions of other people and those assumptions can, can sort of be a part of this distortion, right? It's a part of the, the distortion of how we view uh, the, the outside world and how we view our, our inside world. So how do, how do assumptions play into, everything that we're talking about, how assumptions play into fear and the creation of fear and, and, and how do our assumptions play into uh, how we how we view the world, how we view the structures of the world and, and how we fit into it. So, you know, I think if you were looking for, uh, you know, succinct, pithy way to explain kind of the human mind, uh, sort of a, a, a predictive engine, it was, it, you know, it's got to be a, as good as any other, you know, quirky idea I could come up with. So, you know, that, that's what, that's, that's how our brain is wired. We are built to predict, to infer, to assume, right? Ultimately, the challenge for the, the human brain is to t- say, how can I, uh, as, as efficiently as possible, as rapaciously as possible, collect stimulus, co- co- collect input of experiences I've had in the past uh, and reason from those to tell me how I should most productively behave, you know, now in the present. So that, that, that's what we do. I mean, it's the, it's, it's the reason we go to bed at night thinking that, you know, or assuming that the sun's going to rise in, in the morning. And now conceptually, we understand it in you know, the solar system and all that. But basically, we make a million assumptions uh, all day long, every day, just to be able to get to get through our day. Just like, for example, when you're sitting in your car driving 90 miles an hour on the highway, uh, you don't constantly remind yourself of the uh, panoply of risks that you're facing, uh, <laughs> uh, very substantial risks that you're facing, right? You're, you're able to just kind of say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to tell myself I'm, I'm, I'm cool right now and I'm safe because uh, that's how my brain has figured out how to cope with this with this situation. And so. Uh, it's, it's what we are, it's who we are. And so in that respect, it, you know, there's, there's parts of it that are, that are, that are beautiful, uh, and that are, uh, uh, you know, that are important. It goes too far. Uh, it goes too far when we're not aware that we're doing it. Um, and it goes too far, uh, when we start to let our sort of, uh, internal assumptions creep out, uh, into the world around us. When we start to interpret, uh, discuss, react to, the behaviors of other people around us, for example, trapped in that same uh, hyper idiosyncratic, hyper personalized uh, logic of your own mind. You, you, that's not where understanding comes from. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, fear. So, so, okay. So we're, how does fear fit, fit into all this? We say we're these predictive engines that are built to reason from past experience, uh, reason from memories, insights, et cetera. What happens when we confront the unknown? What happens when we kind of reach into that database and we don't we don't have much? That that's when fear shows up. Um, that's you know in, in the most primal cases, sort of fight or flight. It's the sort of animal brain, but but really fear. You know when we confront the unknown or in times of change or crisis, uh, fear is 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 the mind essentially uh, filling in the unknown with the worst case scenario, and that can be very motivating. If for example now it's time to run away from a large animal that might later turn out to be harmless. But right this moment, uh, we need to run away from it. So that's, that's, a, that's the wiring at work in a, in a productive way. When we tell ourselves all sorts of awful things and, and then start believing it uh, and then make those things true for ourselves only because we were afraid of them in the first instance, that's not so good. Uh, and so for me, uh, the way to tackle fear, the way I try to keep my fears in check, you know, in my life is, is just, again, with a, a sort of a vigilant watch over uh, what is it that I really know? What is it that I think I know? Uh, and, and what is it that I'm making up? 
And, you know, that the, the second and third categories and really the second categories where we do ourselves a lot, a lot of damage, we, we kind of breeze over a lot of the things that we think we know when, you know, when, when, when you sort of actually uh, commit to being, uh, uh, you know, again, uh, having the focus, the attention, the discipline to, to, to start paying attention to some of those assumptions and questioning them. In my case, at least, a lot of them are, are pretty terrifying. They're pretty awful. In, in terms of the, like in terms of the personal impact? Yeah. The personal impact they, they they can they can serve to uh, they can serve to make us our own worst enemies. Uh, they can serve to keep us apart from each other when we crave connection. Uh, you know they can engender insecurity and distrust. And um, and you know we're we ultimately we're we're really really convincing storytellers, especially the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can think of a, a few examples of you know in in relationships in work environments where assumptions had have led to just complete breakdowns you know in in communications and connections in um just just so many aspects i think one of the things that you said that really stood out are or, or was the 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 part around the the things that we're making up and I, you know i think as as you know, individuals who are, I think, you know, the, the, the people who listen to this podcast are really individuals who are looking to grow themselves in some capacity, who are looking to learn. And I think that that's such an interesting point to make uh, is that there are things that we just fundamentally make up within our own, within our own narratives, within our own storylines, within ourselves. And, and a challenge that people could undertake that are listening to this, uh, you know, I think actually might have some serious merit to it is actually just spend seven days questioning the things that you make up, you know, to, and, and the stories that you make up and the things that you tell yourself and the assumptions that you make up and the judgments that you make up and to be able to look at your life in such a way through the lens of critical critical thinking and actually be able to say okay what am i fabricating in my life right now and to just do that for 7 days and i think what you were saying which was you know so so spot on is like it's almost terrifying you know like it's almost like oh my gosh like these stories these narratives these assumptions these judgments these things that that maybe aren't true but when we start to really look at them and say, okay, is this true? Does my wife, does my partner, does my son or daughter or coworker, do they actually think this way that, that I've sort of assumed and made up? Is that actually true? And then to be able to go out into the world and, and actually ask that can be incredibly profound because it can show us that our version of reality, our assumption of reality might actually not be true. And ha have you noticed this distinction in your life? Like, or, or, or if you have, how have you seen it show up? I mean, I, all the time, I feel blessed to be able to relate to a lot of the people in my life, most of the people in my life with very little, uh, I guess, BS, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, life's, life's too short for it. And uh, there's no need for it, you know, beyond, beyond, you know, thinking, I, once you start to become aware of all the assumptions that you're making, all the cues, all the sort of stories you're telling yourself sort of throughout your day, I, I think the next thing you'll, you'll, you'll quickly see is how frequently we react, uh, you know, almost instinctively or, you know, or, or subconsciously or, you know, certainly without much thought to those stimuli. And, that, and that's where you start to realize, wow, like now I see where my choice is in all this. Um, and so let's take, uh, anger, for example, you know, we, we often get angry. I get angry all the time and we often get angry and it's a, if you're out there and you're in the mix and you're trying to relate to people and, and, and do exceptional things, it's, you know, it's going to happen almost always a response in anger. I mean, I can't think of a counter example 
uh, a response in anger will be counterproductive to what it is that you are trying to accomplish. Your own ends, goals, means, objectives, whatever you're in this for, a response in anger is going to be counterproductive to. And so it's easy to say that out loud and to make the obvious conclusion, why do we ever react in anger? Uh, and, you know, it's just as easy to dismiss the question as impractical. I, I, I choose to think about that question a lot. <laughs> in particular, I choose to think about that question every time I get angry. Now, am I, always am I always able to overcome my anger and respond in precisely exactly the way I'd like to? No, I am a human being. I, I yell at my kids. It kills me when I do, but it happens. Uh, I, you know, whatever I do, I'm human. But at least I'm in the game and I'm aware of it. And I'm honest with myself about it. And I'm honest with everyone else about it too. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a strength in that, you know, I think there's a real, there's a real strength in, in, in that because there's also a humility, you know, and I think oftentimes where, and, and this is sort of the emergence that we've started to see is that there, there is a, there, that there's a strength in truth and that there's a, there's a large subset of people that are working towards that and that they're fallible and that they're not, you know, they're not perfect, but they're working towards that that ideal, that, that construct of being able to live in, in that way in accordance to that. And then there seems to be a, a large divergence of people who, who don't want to do that, who, who yeah. see strength in, you know, staying in, yeah, staying in, staying in the shadows, right? Staying in the shadows and, and, and mistruths and not having to take ownership over, over falsehoods. And, and I think that that it's such a dangerous place to, to play because, it's a make-believe place. It's not a real place, you know? And it's almost like the the acceptance of, the living of, the ownership over a, a lie in many, 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 many ways and many versions of a lie. But it's it's such an interesting territory to to play in. And so I like the distinction that you're saying. And I'm I'm curious because one of the last pieces that you talk about is, you know, this this concept of acceptance. And I think that we talk about acceptance so often that for people it can kind of be like, ugh, like acceptance. Like how do I like I think when I when I speak with guys especially, they're like, well, how the hell do I even do that? Like, what the hell does that even mean? Like, you know, how am I supposed to accept that, you know, I have this health problem or that my wife and I are getting a divorce or that my kid is pissed off at me, like, or that I'm getting fired. Like, how am I supposed to actually accept that? And, you know, it just seems absurd. And we've, we've sort of been bred in a way to, to fight against things that we don't like. And so, you know, for you, how has acceptance served you? How, how has it really supported you on your journey, on your growth? I mean, in every way. I mean, acceptance to me is the idea that it is not the circumstances uh, that I confront in my life that will dictate, you know, the quality of the life that I live. And so... Uh, it, you know, it is incumbent upon me to make the life I want out of the, the constraints, uh, you know, I've been dealt. Society, uh, the, you know, humanity gives us countless examples of people who endure the most unspeakable of conditions. Thinking of Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl's amazing book about his time in the concentration camp, of course. Uh, you know, you hear about POWs, uh, heroes like John McCain, uh, et cetera. Just people who in, in, in literally the most unimaginable, horrifying of circumstances, find meaning, purpose, even joy for themselves. Uh, and, 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 you know, they, they are masters of the idea that what happens, you know, between our ears is, is our reality and is up to us. Uh, and so, you know, acceptance to me is more about that affirmative story than about the negative 
story I might want to tell myself about blindness or about not being tall enough or about being too chubby or about having a big nose or about, I mean, whatever. We all have the things we'd love to change. We all have our challenges, divorce. Uh, I mean, look, man, we're living in a world in which kids are starving. Uh, so, I, you know, everyone's got their, their struggles. Acceptance is like, is the, so what part? Like, uh, what, you know, what, what do I want to do with what I have, uh, with the time and, and, and the life that I have, uh, before me right now. So to me, acceptance is an affirmative thing. It's not a, it's not a negative. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it's, it's interesting because I, I think that there's sort of like, I mean, there's a few viewpoints on it. One is that it's a weakness and, and others is that it's, it's a, it's an inherent strength. And depending on where you, you know, where you fall on the spectrum of acceptance, (laughs) um, and, and what your relationship is to it. Um, I, I mean, I have a, I have a theory that, that uh, people's abilities to, to really be accepting and and have acceptance as a as a value uh, you know as a high value is is really dependent on their on their upbringing and that they're they're sort of like parent dependent you know and that that parents really teach um a, a lot of i mean a lot of these values but especially when it comes to acceptance and how they how kids have seen parents accept uh things in their life or circumstances really teaches them the value of that in some way shape or form versus whether that you know whether that parent has rejected or that parent figure has rejected acceptance entirely that can also shape a child to say like no you know what i'm just going to reject anything that doesn't fit into how i think the world should work i'm also curious in terms of how we can start to practice acceptance because i feel like this is a an important undertaking that a lot of people could start to practice so for you do you have a do you have a, a not a daily version of this but but how do you accept challenging situations how how do you allow yourself to step into that space sure so so for me as it relates to my blindness for example because it's probably the simplest example but th- this notion of acceptance how it sort of plays out where the rubber meets the road in my life is i whenever i am uh making some decision that implicates uh you know uh, my blindness uh in some way i i i sort of uh put up a red flag and I, I make sure that I am, am uh, very careful to be super thorough and super honest with myself. Um, so what, what I mean, for example, is uh, if I'm invited to uh, an event or social, whatever it is, and, and let's say maybe in the background, I say, well, this is not the ideal situation. It's, you know, on a boat, uh, you know, whatever. I, I need to walk a narrow bridge along a cliff and then get on a boat and there's, you know, pyrotechnics. And so maybe, uh, you know, as a blind guy, I could be forgiven to, 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 to sort of sit this one out. So for me, that's a major moment in life because that's a moment where you got to stop and say, all right, well, let's pick this up. Let's sort of unpack this here. and Let's pick it apart. If it is really true that I think that the excessive burden or this or that, or I'm not going to enjoy it. And as a result, uh, I'm making a decision for myself that I'm going to pass. Like if that's what's really going on here, absolutely fine with that. If on the other hand, being really honest with myself, I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, I think I'd love to go on this and, you know, parts of it kind of whatever, but other, or I really feel like I should, or it's important for business, or I told my kids I would, then it's like, well, all right, now we kind of have a little bit of a conflict here. Uh, and, and, you know, we're, we're, what, what wins out? What's my priority? Um, and it, for me, it's less about there, there necessarily being a right or a wrong answer, you know, and, and it's just more about 
being really careful about the sort of subtleties in, 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 in those stories you tell yourself. So, you know, don't you start telling yourself you can't or you won't or, or uh, you know, pretty soon that sort of creeps into choose not to. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's I think that's a, the big piece, you know, for myself. Acceptance has been an interesting relationship. I, you know, I I always struggled with it when I was a little bit younger, just like trying to force things in, into play. And I started to notice that the things that I started to accept shaped and and shifted my mindset. And it required me to have a little bit more, you know, Carol Dweck wrote the great book Mindset. But oh, yeah, wow. but acceptance really, when I started to practice acceptance in my life, I started to notice that it was one of the fundamental pieces where I where I would have a fixed mindset. And when I started to accept things, it actually started to shift me over to a growth mindset because I started to see what was possible rather than what wasn't working. And acceptance was really that that bridge um, between the two areas. I totally, totally hear you. Yeah, for me, really, acceptance is that like, so what, what's next? Kind yeah, of. yeah, totally. Um, well, listen, man, we, we don't have too much time left and we're, you know, we're almost done here for the day. But I, you know, the last thing that I, that I really wanted to, you know, connect with you about was, was being a husband and, and being a father. You know, it seems like it's a really important piece of your life. And I'm curious about how you sort of juggle all the pieces of, you know, running, running a company and, um, you know, just, just being able to like manage all of those things and, and still be a great father, a great husband, carve out time for your kids. What, what's some of the advice that you can give to, you know, to the listeners that are tuning into the show? You know, by, by way of disclaimer, I think each of us gets to decide our own values and priorities. And I, I certainly don't mean to impose mine on anyone else. So, uh, for me, however, it's, it's almost easy because I, I mean, I, I, I live for, for my kids and, and you know, by essentially my wife as well. But, I mean, for me, uh, my children are kind of my grand unifying theory of life in the sense that uh, not only first and foremost, do I want to be there with them to spend time with them, to teach them, to shape you know, who they are and to do to enjoy them um, in the sort, of, sort of sense of life balance. But for me, it's even it's broader than that. Um, in, in everything that I do, I want to I want to live the example uh, that I hope. Uh, to provide for my children as their father. I am far from perfect in that endeavor. It is, again, it's my grand unifying theory. So I, it, for me, it's less, again, of a, of a burden or a, or a conflict and more of a, it's, 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 an, it's harmonious. Uh, as I'm thinking about what my next business project might look like, what my next endeavor might look like, uh, uh, how I want to sort of, you know, organize my time uh, and my pursuits, my, 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 my children and my family are really at the forefront of my mind in every way. Love it. Love it, man. Well, listen, thank you so much for, for joining me here today and um, love the work that you're doing and really appreciate your TED Talk uh, and, uh, and just, just like just everything you're up to. This was a really, really great conversation. And you know, I'm very appreciative to have had you uh, on the show to be able to talk about some of these pieces and get your, you know, get your perspective and, and, and wisdom in, in a lot of these ways. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. And for, for everybody that's out there listening, you can definitely go onto Amazon or uh, onto Isaac's site and check out Eyes Wide Open, his book. Um, some of the pieces that we've, we're talking about uh, here today are, are in that book. It's a great read. Uh, we'll have the links in the show notes. And you can also uh, check out his uh, website and his TED Talk. We'll have all of that in the show notes. Uh, so definitely go check that out. 
And uh, don't forget to don't forget to man it forward. Share this podcast episode with just one person that you think would enjoy this conversation and get some value from it. Uh, make sure you leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way into getting us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join us next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.